glad that you are here with us this morning. Let's start by doing this. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. And I want you to think to the year 2015, okay? Imagine the year 2015 and all the things that you felt in that moment. I'm going to make a statement that I believe 2015 was a simpler time, okay? And in fact, the Atlantic, you guys can open your eyes if you have not already. (laughs) In fact, the Atlantic called 2015 the greatest year in history for the average human being. As somebody who considers themselves a very average human being, this was true, okay? 2015, the greatest year in history. But my question to you is, do you really remember 2015? So I'm going to jog your memory. Few pop cultural things that happened, okay? Uh, Anybody ever heard the song Uptown Funk? (laughs) That song has been played like 40 billion times. Everybody knows that song. That 2015 gave us Mark Ronson's great hit, with Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk. Uh, Star Wars came back into the collective consciousness with The Force Awakens. How many people have seen that, uh, that series or that uh, kind of newer Star Wars series? Yes? A lot of us? Uh, the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl with that last 30-second uh, interception on the goal line. Okay, that happened in 2015. My favorite thing, and I actually... Uh, used this story in one of my messages given in 2015. Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen climbed the famously impossible Dawn Wall in Yosemite National Park. If you've not seen the movie, The Dawn Wall, totally worth a watch. Uh, But that happened in 2015. There's maybe four of us that actually know what that means, and that's okay. That was something that I was very excited about. So, although it may be tough to remember this time period above the things that I just mentioned, 2015 did not pass without some important societal advancements. A couple of things that happened. 195 countries signed the first accord on climate change in 2015. We found two new moons orbiting Pluto in 2015. Extreme global poverty decreased for the first time in years, The Ebola endemic was declared over by the WHO. The Supreme Court decided to federally allow same-sex marriage rights for all of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So some really important things happened in this year. 2015 also had some heartbreak. There were several horrific terrorist attacks in France. There was a massive Amtrak crash near Philadelphia. Gun deaths were on the rise, and in fact, in 2015, we saw over 50 mass shootings. In fact, Sunday, directly following the San Bernardino shooting in December, we scrapped our entirely scheduled service, what we had planned to do on that morning, just to come together as a community and pray for the affected community to pray for the brokenness exhibited through violence in our country. In 2015, we were both moved and encouraged by a few things that were happening in and around our world, and in the same way, we were collectively heartbroken by the violence and hatred that was beginning to kind of bubble over in this season. But I still maintain that comparative to what has happened in the seven years since, 
2015 seems like maybe it was a simpler time, maybe even a time for some of us that we wish that we could go back to. Now, why am I talking about 2015? And here's why. Because in 2015, almost seven years ago exactly, Russ and I gave a message entitled An Open Letter to Newcom. It was an opportunity for us to speak boldly into the community, to identify some places in Newcom that we had seen or that we had felt really and truly embodied the life and call of Jesus. It was also an opportunity where we felt that there may be some areas of concern, some areas of caution that we needed to call the community back to the center. Now, this pastoral model of letter sending is something that we've been studying throughout our uh, series through Revelation, but we also see it utilized throughout the entire New Testament, right? It's letters that are being sent back into specific communities by pastoral leaders, both for encouragement, also for caution. Now, in 2015, here is what we spoke into Newcom. We encouraged the community in its riskiness to be a church embracing the reality that much of life has to be lived in the gray. That as much as we may want black and white, that life and its experiences are often far too nuanced to just live in that world. We applauded new community for continually seeking to be a place for the forgotten, the neglected, the marginalized, and the passed over in our city. We ended with the encouragement by acknowledging that Newcom people have always been a people on mission, concerned far more with ushering in the kingdom than establishing our own empire here in Spokane. And as most pastoral letters do, we identified a few specific areas of concern. The first was the time and attention that people were giving to what we called virtual community, i.e. social media. We argued that it might begin to create some serious identity and belonging issues if that we as a community were not careful with how we interacted. Second, we spent a decent amount of time talking about the idea of spiritual laziness, how easily it is to convince ourselves that we've already put in enough work to actively choose to insulate ourselves with things of comfort rather than continuing to pursue the narrow road. And so we called people to continue to leverage all that they have for Jesus. We were prayerful. We were hopeful that this message was what Holy Spirit had intended for our community in this time. And obviously, we all know that hindsight is twenty-twenty. but as I reflect back on that message, back on these encouragements and these cautions, I think Spirit may have spoke some truths for us, spoke some truths for us for a reason, and that they are just as pertinent now as they were back then, all those years later in our less complex reality. So, we've done it before, and as we've been studying these last couple of weeks, the seven letters in Revelation, we felt like it might be a time again to write a letter to new community. Following a similar pattern as we have, but rather than our staff coming up with the cautions and the encouragements, 
we felt like it might be a better practice to invite our community to speak back into itself. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've had a number of different people here in different leadership roles, elders and small group leaders and worship leaders and just Sunday attenders and people that actually don't even call New Community their church home anymore have been submitting to me what they believed were some encouragements about who New Community is and some potential cautions for New Community as a church community here in Spokane. My goal, my task, was to kind of synthesize all of this information and then present the information on behalf of these folks. And so, in my prep, it became pretty clear that what we were truly dealing with was two overarching broad themes. And you'll notice that these two themes The encouragements and the cautions provided are intrinsically connected. So let us begin this morning with our first encouragement. New community, be encouraged that you have fostered a unique church environment that promotes questions, is not afraid of doubt, and acknowledges that many harbor pain and hurt from past church experiences. Now, this is no easy task, especially in a current church culture that values certainty and places a premium on controlling answers. As long as I have been around in this place for 12 years now, we have valued as a community the authentic human spiritual experience far more than some sort of make-believe world where everything always fits right into place. Our community has embraced the raw and ragged edges of experience. I believe that we have worked diligently to sit and be present in the messiness of life. We've agreed that spiritual platitudes don't always help and that it's not our job to push people to a predetermined place. We've tried to listen, tried to empathize, tried to remove ourselves and our own experiences from the center to allow room for those that might be in a different place. If you're sitting here this morning wondering why Newcom may feel a bit different than some of your previous church experiences, this very possibly might be the reason. In John chapter 3 and 4, we are privy to two really, really remarkable conversations. The first is with Nicodemus. The second is with the Samaritan woman. And what I love about these conversations is both are centered around and driven by questions. In the case of Nicodemus, a religious elite who already had all the answers, right? He comes to Jesus under the guise of darkness with plaguing spiritual questions. With a Samaritan woman, for all sorts of cultural reasons, a life-transforming conversation that should have never happened unfolds right there because Jesus initiates with a single question. It's this posture and these questions that open both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman to truly encounter Jesus. These two conversations and all the gospel stories like them have served as our unspoken model for ministry in our community. We question rather than try to control answers. We wonder rather than declare. We invite rather than decide. In being this way, those who have a lot of faith 
those who may be questioning their faith, those who have no faith at all, are all able to be here in this space together to encounter Jesus. I believe this is a critically important space for our church to continue to hold in this city. Now, what becomes really important as we hold this space is that our community does not shift its orbit away from Jesus. And this is the caution that's connected to the encouragement. Here's what I mean by this. Valuing the questions, honoring the doubts, giving voice to the pain can easily become an idol if it's not constantly checked. They become the focus and your vision shifts away from Jesus at the center. Now, this is not intended to minimize any feelings or experiences that people might have in this place, but rather expose the danger of allowing yourself to be consumed by these things. And additionally, intended to expose how destructive it can be to place your doubts and pain on those around you. Now, hear this statement, please. I'm not trying to say you can't be honest and vulnerable with your experience, but it's important to remember that your experience should not be prescriptive for somebody else. Just because the church may have hurt you doesn't mean that the church has hurt everyone. Just because you may have some questions in this moment doesn't mean that anyone that doesn't have those same questions as you is ignorant. Just because your doubt maybe creates obstacles in your life doesn't mean that everybody needs to overcome those exact same obstacles. Now, I've thought a decent amount about this as I've been preparing, and I've thought about it in reference to my kids. So uh, let me use this example, and maybe this is helpful to flesh this out a little bit more. But to be totally honest, I have some significant theological issues with high-production megachurch models, okay? The reliance upon celebrity, the focus on creating an experience, the use of money, a system that values numerical growth over life change is something that I have been a part of in the past and has become a significant personal hang-up for me in my understanding of how the church is to be in a place and in a time. It's one of the reasons why Grace and I actually moved to Spokane. We saw something different, a different way in Newcom, and we were attracted to that. Now, my kids have grown up in this place and this place alone. This is the only church that they have ever known. For better or for worse, this is their lived church experience. They don't have the same hang-up that I have with the megachurch model. In fact, they couldn't even tell you what the megachurch model is if you ask them. I don't need to convince them of anything at this point because they don't know any different. As much as I may want camaraderie around them sharing the same disdain that I share, it wouldn't be beneficial for them, right? It's not helpful for me to speak disparagingly about any churches that might embrace this ministry. It's not helpful for me to send them articles supporting my closely held opinions on this. There is no need for us to attend a mega church just so that I can point out all the things in that service that might make me cringe. This is not their issue. 
this is my issue. And so while I need to work through my stuff, I should allow them the freedom to enjoy the beauty of this place here without imparting on them the baggage that I need to work to offload. My frustrations and anger around these issues do not need to be projected onto them. As a follower and as a community, I firmly believe our lives, our words, and our actions should be driven by the things that we are for far more than the things that we claim we are against. In our leaning into questions and our wrestling with doubt and our understanding of hurt, it can be tempting to project our frustrations and our anger to want to tear down everything that we are against, but simply being against certain things will most readily create adversarial relationships and personal bitterness while actually orienting your life around the things that you are for will lead toward hope and peace and change. So may we continue to embrace the earnest questions that we have in this place. May we continue to work to heal the hurt and pain while never becoming a stumbling block in the lives of those around us and always seeking to live for the things of Jesus. Here's our second encouragement. New community, be encouraged that your extravagant welcome has not gone unnoticed. You have sought to create a place where all are welcome as they are, accepted and loved as children of God. In thinking about this posture, this way that we have tried to be, that we have tried to embody, I'm reminded of the story in which Jesus is anointed by the woman labeled as a sinner in Luke 7. While having dinner at one of the Pharisees' house, this woman comes and she has this known reputation, but she shows up with an alabaster jar of perfume. And the scripture says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. As the dinner guests watch this moment of worship and reverence, they begin to interrogate Jesus, asking how he could let a sinner touch him in this way. In Mark's retelling of the same story in chapter 14, they go as far as rebuking the use of this expensive perfume. But it truly seems as though they are just so disgusted with the reality that this sinful woman would have access to Jesus in this way. And so they thinly veil their argument by saying, couldn't have been sold for more than a year's worth of wages and the money given to the poor. But do any of us read that story and actually think that those individuals cared about the poor in, the, in that moment? Or was it just an attempt to continue to try to hold on to the control of who has access, who gets in, and who stays out? It's easy and it's safe to build walls in a church, to put a fence around the things that we hold dear ensuring that only those that fit some preconceived notion of what a Christian should look like can be on the inside. I think throughout, Christ, uh, throughout history, Christians have read that story, the anointing of this woman, and assumed that they are most like the woman, that we come breaking open our expensive jar of perfume with unbridled fervency, exalting our king. But more often than not, 
I think those that call themselves disciples have been busy at work manufacturing all the reasons and all the structures that limit who can worship. Now, in this place, connected to this encouragement that I just read, I believe many of you are far more similar to that woman than you are the fence-building guests at that dinner. I have witnessed in this community humble worshipers, people that are open to any and all coming to participate, coming to worship, coming to be a part, coming to belong. In the midst of this story, Jesus provides this quick parable for teaching. says this, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. He ends with this question, now which of them will love him more? In being a church community that's lived into the tension of this idea of unity and not uniformity of belief, it seems as though we have tried really, really hard to recognize that none of us, no matter if you owe the 500 or you owe the 50, have the ability to pay pay the money back. And that it is therefore necessary to create a place of refuge for the forgiveness of all people, recognizing that all people are valued that all people matter, that all people are welcome, no matter what they've lived through, no matter what they've done. The love and acceptance that I've seen and experience shared within this community is real and authentic and practical. Now, I know many would agree with me on this, But I've also been around long enough to know that there are probably people in this room right now that haven't yet experienced that side of Newcom, and that pains me. So hear this, community. If you've been on the receiving end of this love, if you've been one of those people that have felt this authentic and real acceptance and love and welcoming from new community, then lean into this idea of usefulness, which Russ talked about last week, and extend that same love to somebody in this building today. Maybe it's a handshake, a hug, a simple question, but we need to be a community that extends that love freely to all people. And we need to be a people that continues to go beyond this place, radically loving those outside these walls so that they may see the hope that Jesus offers. Newcom, your love for one another, and especially the outsider, is well documented. Do not quit living this way. You have created a beautiful community of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. It is not easy work, but again, it is our unique call in this city. Now, in our efforts to love, here is the caution that needs to be extended, and it's this. In our efforts to love, to create a place of grace and mercy, remember that God, in addition to those things, also desires movement and growth. Existing only in a place of grace and mercy is not fully loving. 
although it might be more comfortable to exist this way, we are called to lives of obedience. And lives of obedience are lived in the light and the truth of Christ's reality for how we should be. Seems pretty clear uh, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 14 when he says this, "If if you love me, you will obey what I command. This is not only spoken to those disciples in that moment, but it is spoken to us. We are to live lives of obedience, and we are to invite others into that same type of life, to create space and for grace and mercy is a needed starting point, but helping people to move, including ourselves, closer to Christ through obedient lives should always be the goal of the church. This involves identifying and rooting out sin in our lives. It requires accountability. It demands action of individuals. And as you may have noticed, these are not always topics that fill our conversations. However, I would argue we might be a healthier church community if they took a more prominent position from time to time. Henry Nouwen speaks of obedience in this way. He says, the obedient life develops our abilities to hear and sense God's presence and activities. The word obedience includes the word adair, which means listening. The obedient life is the one in which we listen with great attention to God's spirit within and among us. The great news of God's revelation is not simply that God exists, but also that God is actively present. Our God is a God who cares, heals, guides, directs, challenges, confronts, corrects, and forms us. God is a God who wants to lead us closer to the full realization of our lion-hearted humanity, if you will. To be obedient means to be constantly attentive to his active presence and to allow God, who is only love, to be the source as well as the goal of all we think, say, and do. Obedience is not just following a set of standards. It is the very process by which we can hear and sense God's activity in our lives and in the world around A welcoming and loving community is only as good as it can help people encounter and grow in their obedience to Christ. There is a delicate balance to be struck in this way because we could be the most welcoming and open and affirming church in the history of Christendom, but if our people are not maturing in Christ, then we've missed our call. And similarly, we could be a remarkable uh, church of maturation and growth in the individual members of this community, but if the stranger does not feel welcome and accepted, then we've missed it on the other side. As a community, we need to be equally committed to the extravagant and loving welcome as we are our challenge to obedience, to living life with the conduct that Christ has called us toward. Second John seems to capture this dichotomy when it says this, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Walking this tightrope, if you will, I believe is the greatest challenge for our community in the coming years. But it is a challenge that I believe is worth embracing. 
So this morning, two encouragements, two cautions. This was intended to be a moment that was hopeful. Yes, there are places of caution that have been identified, but I believe, and as I read these emails that were submitted back to me, I believe that they are all coming from a place of true love of this community. None of them came with anger or were supposed to induce fear. Came from loving voices, from those that truly want the best for this church community and know what Newcom could do in this city. Now, we are not a perfect church. We never have claimed to be, but rather a church humbly chasing after Christ, trying its best to live into our unique call in this city. I asked for one final kind of idea from a gentleman that some of you may know. His name is Russ. He's been here for a long time. I said, uh, Russ, what would you say if I sent this email to you? And this is what he said. We have come this far. Don't stop now, anonymous. (laughs) And then the email did this. Pretty bold move to put your name after an anonymous quote. But I think the sentiment is certainly what we have been sensing in this time, that our church has endured a lot in its history, that our culture, we as a people, have endured a lot in this last seven years. And although many of us may feel tired, like the energy that we once had in 2015 while listening to Uptown Funk has been sucked out of us, God continues to invite us to be creators and builders and artists for his coming kingdom. This is the hope in Revelation 21, which we read before I got up here. This is God's dwelling place with his people will be here. It's a hope where all things are made right, where new order is established. And our work now is to prepare for that coming time to be a foretaste of this new kingdom. So let us remember, Holy Spirit is at work in this place, in you, in this city. And God is not done with you. He is not done with me. He is not done with us yet. May this be the cry and the work of our collective heart for this coming year. Amen. We're going to take uh, a bit of time here for an extended set of worship. We've looked a lot at a lot of stuff over the past uh, few weeks as we've been studying through the letters in Revelation. So if you want to sing, by all means, sing, worship, take any posture of worship that is helpful for you. If you just need a few moments to decompress, to think, to journal, to just be in this space and allow spirit to talk to you, feel free to do that as well. But I'll turn it over to Brian.